She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and if you're listening for the first time, here's what you need to know right off the bat. We are in the middle of the series, They Called Them Crazy. Each week, we're looking into the life and legacy of a woman whom society at some point dubbed crazy. Why were they called crazy? Were they certifiably insane by today's standards, or were there other reasons that they were shunned as such in their lifetimes? And that's what we're here to find out. We split this rich subject matter into a few mini-series, starting with prolific broads, and then we moved into the next mini-series, visionary broads. And as you'll recall, visionary in this context means that these chicks literally had religious visions. The last two weeks... We dug into the legacy of Hildegard von Bingen, who was both a prolific broad and a visionary broad. She kind of crossed both of those categories. And if you missed those episodes uh, on Hildegard von Bingen, you should cue those up after this one, as you do not want to miss her. She is incredible. But today, I'm taking us even deeper into visionaries and into this strange and sometimes wonderful world of medieval mysticism with none other than Catherine of Siena. Catherine was declared a doctor of the church in 1970. If you recall, being a doctor of the church means that you had great influence in the development and theology of the church. So in 1970, she was declared a doctor, and she was named a patron saint of all of Europe in 1999. Prior to that, she already was the patron saint of Italy, her home country. So arguably and surprisingly, She's considered kind of a bigger deal by the church than Hildegard was because Hildegard didn't get canonized and made a doctor of the church until 2012. Catherine, on the other hand, was canonized, initially made a saint, in 1491, which was a mere 81 years after her death. It's so interesting to compare her to Hildegard because Catherine's surviving writings... Uh, in volume, are, are false, far smaller and less dense than Hildegard's. So from Catherine, we've got about 380 of her letters, 26 prayers, and four treatises, which are known as Il Libro della Divina Dottrina. And that translates to The Dialogue. That's her big flagship work. Um, and Hildegard, we know, wrote far far more letters, books, all of it. She just was so prolific with her writing and her music. But then we also have to remember that Hildegard, who was highly influential several centuries prior to Catherine, was tucked away in a tightly knit cloister in the woods of central Germany, where some of her writings and music stayed hidden there in Germany until as late as like the friggin' 20th century. Whereas Catherine... She was, like, (laughs) for lack of a better comparison, much more like the Kardashian of her time. 
at least with regards to her public figure celebrity status, not her beliefs and her practices, right? Okay, but I'm getting way ahead of myself a little. Let's go back to the beginning. Catherine was born March 25th, 1347 in Siena, Tuscany in Italy. An Italian broad. We've only had a couple Italian broads on this pod so far. She was the youngest of 25 children. I thought Hildegard's mom was impressive with 10, but friggin' 25? Wow. I, all the sources made sure to mention over half her siblings did not survive to adulthood, but that's still an insane number of children to have. Her mom must have been incredibly superhuman or something. I have no idea. And Catherine herself, well, she was actually born a twin. But her sister, Giovanna, only lived a very short time after they were born. Um, and then, apparently, when Catherine was two years old, her mom had one more baby, her 25th child, or 27th child, uh, a daughter that she also named Giovanna. Um, so she had two kids named Giovanna. Um, the, her family, Catherine's family, was middle class-ish, not particularly poor or particularly rich. Um and Catherine, apparently, had her first vision of Christ when she was only five or six years old. She said that Jesus smiled at her, blessed her, and left her in ecstasy. It's not really surprising, then, that at the age of seven, and just a year or two later, she vows chastity. Well, fast forward a little bit. Uh, there's not a ton of information about her early life, but when Catherine is 16, apparently... Her older sister, Bonaventura, dies in childbirth. And then very shortly after that, her youngest sister, Giovanna, dies as well. And Catherine was absolutely bereft. Also, though, apparently, her parents wanted her to marry Bonaventura's widower so that she could help raise their children. And Catherine was like, absolutely not. And she starts fasting. Several sources said that she learned this practice, fasting, from her late sister, Bonaventura, whose husband apparently, but unsurprisingly, was gross and rude with terrible manners. And Bonaventura would refuse to eat until he showed better manners. And apparently that worked, I guess. So we need to add that to our toolbox, ladies. Just kidding. Please don't do that. Let's not starve ourselves. That's ridiculous. So um, <clears throat> most of the articles I found refer to Catherine's strict, quote, aestheticism. And I, I kind of had a vague definition of aestheticism as being some kind of strict, fastidious, religious thing. But I looked it up so that we would know for sure for this episode. Aestheticism comes from the Greek word askeo, which translates to to exercise or to train. And aestheticism is the practice of the denial of physical or psychological desires in order to attain a spiritual ideal or goal. Um, later in her life, when she was writing more, Catherine described how she was able to build a cell inside her mind. She would picture her father as representative of Christ and her mother as the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
and her siblings were the apostles, and she learned that serving them humbly became an opportunity for her to grow spiritually. And the greater the suffering, the larger the triumph. And so that's kind of like a little window into like what she was thinking while she was fasting, while she was so fastidious here. Um, Catherine also took this protesting to the next level, and she cuts off her long hair, which severely affected her attractive level rating at the time period. People were really into long hair, so short hair, oh my God. And eventually her parents give in, and they stop trying to force the issue, and they, they stop trying to force her to marry her sister's widower. Um, and Catherine, pretty much this whole time, but especially when her parents were trying to marry her off, she had been kind of begging her parents to be allowed to join the local order of St. Dominic. And in 1363, apparently Catherine has a vision of St. Dominic himself. And she goes to her parents and she's like, it's a sign. I have to join them. But her mom was like, no way. We don't want you to join the church. You're not allowed. And mysteriously, Catherine becomes super ill. And her mom, who is now very worried about losing yet another precious child after all those that she's lost already, her mom takes her to the local branch of the Dominican order, and Catherine is instantly healed. And within days, she had taken the vows and she wore the black and white habit as a member of the third order of St. Dominic. But unlike Hildegard, she is not cloistered away. She was a what's called a tertiary, which meant that she lived outside the convent at home with her family. And apparently she lived in like almost total silence and solitude, even in her own home, like shut away from her family. And at some point she was taught to read either by the Dominicans when she went to study there or her family or both. I'm a little unclear. The sources were a little bit mixed on that. But she does learn to read at some point in this time period. And this whole time, Catherine continues to have visions. And Raymond of Capua, who who, um, the man who would end up being both her confessor and he would also end up recording most of her writings and letters. She would dictate all that to him. She, um, Raymond said that after a few years shut away in this lifestyle at home, quote, she was told by Christ to leave her withdrawn life and enter the public life of the world, end quote. So Catherine threw open the shutters and she started hanging out with her family again. And she also began helping the ill and the poor. And she went around to hospitals and made house calls to care for these folks. And she also starts giving away food and clothes from her family. And apparently, without asking her family if it was okay with them. I get like, I don't know why. I love this part of her story that she just like starts giving away her family stuff in the name of God. And apparently, like not... Not like a couple things, like a pretty significant cost to her family. She gives away all of this stuff. But Catherine wasn't asking stuff for herself. She never asked her family to buy her stuff or enjoy stuff. She was hardly, you know, she was fasting. She's doing all this stuff. She's like hardly even eating. She is just giving her family stuff away to the people who, who need it day to day. And all of these behaviors of Catherine start to gain the attention of her neighbors. 
And Catherine develops kind of like a local following in Siena. And then in 1366, when she's just 21, Catherine has the vision of all visions, which really becomes, it becomes kind of the launch point for everything that follows. She has a vision wherein she enters a, quote, mystical marriage with Jesus. Apparently, Jesus appeared to her and he declares his intention to make her his mystical bride and offers her a wedding ring. Get this, not made of metal, but made of his own flesh. The foreskin from his circumcision. Ooh, that's so gross. Apparently, I, I, the sources indicated that apparently that that particular piece of skin was a very popular religious relic in the time period. Like more than one church was like, I have the holy foreskin. I will probably never get over how weird the medieval times were. And this is one of the grosser moments. So I'm just going to gross out about it. And maybe you are too. Um, of course, the ring that Catherine received was invisible to everyone else. Only Catherine could see it. So that's interesting. Um, I am not entirely clear on the timeline of all of her visions after this like major one, because she continues to have them here and there throughout her life. At some point, she has a vision of her heart, her heart, like the organ literally being taken by Christ and replaced with his own heart. And after that, after that vision, her heart would throb every time she received the Eucharist or the communion. Um, once in a vision, she also received communion from Christ himself. I'm not clear on if it was grape juice or if it was blood. I'm guessing it was the latter because medieval times. Um, but back to the regular timeline. When word of her mystical marriage vision gets out, Catherine becomes pretty freaking popular in Siena. And the Dominican order starts getting a lot of attention too. And it runs up the flagpole and Catherine is called to Florence in 1374 to be interrogated by the church leadership for possible heresy. Um, people who are saying they're talking to God and aren't talking to God, that was a big deal back then if you were, if you were a liar. I... And I'm not going to do a deep dive into Italian and Roman Catholic history at this point in time, but it would seem safe to say generically, Italy is kind of cracking at the seams at this point. And cities and um, regions are all experiencing a lot of fighting. And there's like a generally large movement to kind of wiggle out from under the thumb of the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church. So Catherine's direct connection to Christ and God through these visions made her a really influential voice and tool for the Dominican leadership. And at, at this trial, not quite called an inquisition by any of my sources, but it seems sort of like an inquisition, Catherine is deemed, quote, orthodox, which makes her official in the eyes of the church. And so she is officially got like the rubber stamp of approval and so she begins kind of expanding her ring of influence and she starts traveling with her followers throughout northern and central Italy. And she's advocating for a refor reform of the clergy. 
She is advising people that they can repent and renewal is possible through the, quote, total love of God. Um, traveling isn't the only way that she spreads her influence. She starts dictating letters. Mostly she dictated. She didn't write them herself, um, we understand. But she wrote letters to men and women alike. And she also wrote letters and begged figures in authority to come to peace. So she's, she's kind of writing to these disparate parties between republics and principalities all over Italy. And she's like, please, 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 we need the peace. Um, and she travels in 1375 to Pisa, and she tries to convince Pisa and Luca, another city, or Lucha, I bet it's Lucha because it's Italian, to come back into the Pope's fold. They were trying to kind of go rogue on the Pope, and, and she was like, you have to come back. And she also, at this point, it starts promoting the idea of launching a new crusade. Um, my sources didn't say why she was kind of bent on this crusade angle, but part of me probably thinks that like, okay, well, everyone will come together under the Catholic Church if we come together to fight the Muslims is kind of like the generic feeling I got from from the sources I was reading. Um, While she's in Pisa that same year, she has another vision. And she claims in this vision to have received the stigmata uh, for those of you not religious or not into horror movies, the stigmata are the wounds of Christ, right? The the hands, the pricks from the thorns, and the cut on the ribs. Um, but as with her wedding ring, the wounds, stigmata wounds, were not visible. Catherine and Catherine alone could feel them. But stigmata is huge in religious lore. Um, towards the end of 1375, she returns to Siena, and she attends a political prisoner at his execution. And, you know, she's this whole time, she's still preaching. She's still doing, doing all this, this touring and public speaking. And then in June 1376, Catherine goes to Avignon as an ambassador of the Republic of Florence to make peace with the Papal States. But this apparently was unsuccessful, and in a major power move, the Florentine leaders, um, who had like basically shunned her and shut her out of those negotiations, they send ambassadors to negotiate their own terms. And Catherine is pissed off, and she writes like an astoundingly bold reply that that you know, I don't know. She she reads them the riot act. Let's just say. <laughs> Um, and while she's in Avignon, though, she also is trying to convince Pope Gregory IX to return to Rome. So at this time, the, the center of the church is in Avignon. It's not in Rome, where it had, it had always been before. And it, it would appear um, in the reading that I did that uh, Catherine really believed that this was part of the fracturing that they were experiencing in Italy and, and in the church, and that if he would just return to Rome, they would be able to bring everybody together again. Um, and Gregory, Pope Greg, and apparently she called him Papa and Daddy, by the way. She called the Pope in her letter. She called the Pope Papa, which I find also just amazing. Um, apparently Gregory did end up returning his administration to Rome in January of 1377. But according to Wikipedia, 
we aren't sure, quote, to what extent this was due to Catherine's influence. So thanks, Wikipedia, for something but nothing at the same time. Um, Catherine ends up returning to Siena, and she spends the early part of 1377 founding a women's monastery outside the city. And she goes to Rocca Dorchia, about 20 miles from Siena, on a local mission, making peace and preaching. And it's during this next period of time, late 1377, she had the vision that would end up becoming what is widely known as her most important surviving work, which we've already said, the dialogue. And the dialogue is said to have been written while she was in a state of ecstasy. Um, a state of ecstasy is very complicated and the definition of it seems to kind of change with each person that kind of goes through it. But for, for purposes of simplicity, it's kind of like a trance when she's receiving these visions. So she can't hear or see other things around her. She's just connected into God and Jesus and, um, in, in, I'm just going to say it, just, just say a trance. Um, and so, the dialogue basically is a is just a writing of what she experiences then, and the whole book is basically a conversation between her and God. Um, it is widely read, widely studied in seminary and otherwise, and I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to like dig crazy into it. Definitely look it up if, if you're curious about it. Many of her famous quotes came from that book. Um, but I'm going to keep going with her storyline. Late in 1377, or possibly early in 1378, she travels again to Florence, uh, this time at the order of Pope Gregory, to try to bring peace between Florence and Rome. But Gregory dies just a few months later. And immediately following, there's riots and revolts. And Catherine is nearly killed some sources even said assassinated. She was nearly assassinated in all the violence that followed the death of the Pope. Um, finally, about six months later, peace was agreed between Florence and Rome, and Catherine was able to return to Florence, but not for long because the new Pope, Urban VI, um, in November 1378, he summons her back to Rome to join his court to try to convince all the nobles and cardinals of his legitimacy. So there's a lot of, is he the legitimate pope? Is he not? And I'm not even going to dig into it because that's not what I want to focus on. Um, but essentially, Catherine would send out a bazillion letters on behalf of Pope Urban. Um, and she also helped him to kind of reorganize the church and restructure it and try to kind of bring back some of this unity and bring back the peace. She also tried to win back apparently Queen Joan I of Naples. Um, she had, had been ex um, excommunicated by Urban because she supported one of the anti-popes, Clement VII. Um, and uh, Catherine was trying to get her to come back and to, to claim obedience to Urban. You know, unification was her, her kind of big MO, especially at the end of her life here. And Catherine would end up staying with Pope Urban's court in Rome until she died in 1380. So St. Catherine dies in Rome, April 29th, 1380. She was only 33 years old, but she apparently had suffered a stroke eight days earlier. 
that's the description that Encyclopedia Britannica gives of her death. But it wasn't a mere stroke, guys. Remember this aestheticism stuff we talked about just a little bit ago at the beginning of the episode? So this aestheticism practice continues throughout her life, not just in protest of having to get married, but she continues to follow that throughout all of the things we just talked about. She's constantly fasting. She refuses to eat anything other than apparently raw vegetables and the Eucharist, her communion. And she claimed that she found no nourishment in earthly food. And this extreme basically anorexia, as we now would define it, took a huge toll on Catherine's body. She kind of was wasting away, and everyone could see it in real time. And the clergy and her fellow sisters, even her confessor, uh, he ordered her to eat properly. But if she did, she would just throw it up and have severe stomach pains. Um, And of course, for Catherine, it was just another penance to bear. Um, So... She didn't think more heavily about it or change her ways. But in Rome, it all catches up with her and her body stops working properly. She can't walk. She has this stroke and then she dies about eight days later. Man, I don't even know where to begin when we circle back to the question of crazy, right? Catherine has visions as young as five. And it would seem to me, as and at many of my sources, that her visions came at convenient times she marries christ so she can't marry her sister's widow she falls ill but her mother mother won't let her join the dominican order etc etc and then she's also got this aestheticism this extreme fasting which was not put onto her so if you remember hildegard and her sister nuns were barely fed once a day by the benedictine monks and that was this like kind of strict aestheticism that they practiced and was put on hildegard that hildegard helped to break them out of But Catherine chose fasting, first as a protest, but then as a lifestyle. Or, I mean, modern Sarah here asks, like, did she maybe have some kind of terrible digestive disorder that made not eating preferable to eating and and the pains that would follow when she did eat? And in my mind, like, that is totally possible. And furthermore, couldn't the lack of eating and low blood sugar cause you to hallucinate and stuff? And and when you're God and Christ obsessed to the level that Catherine seemed to be, don't you always think that life's difficulties are a challenge to your faithfulness? And wouldn't a stubborn, somewhat unruly woman double down on piety to ensure her place in heaven? Like all, all of these little possibilities make sense to me. St. Catherine of Siena might have been crazy or she might have been smart or she might have had an eating disorder Or maybe a combo of all three of those things. But the only thing that we can say for certain is that she wielded a huge amount of influence in the lives of her followers. And in the end, she shaped the development of the Catholic Church and all of Italy during her time. And at a time when very few women actually made it into the history books. Uh, I will close out her episode leaving you with Just a couple of her famous quotes. You are rewarded not according to your work or your time, but according to the measure of your love. And it is only through shadows that one comes to know the light. And perhaps her most famous quote, 
Be who God meant you to be, and you will set the world on fire. St. Catherine of Siena, you definitely did set the world on fire, and you are abroad we should know. To learn more about Catherine of Siena, see some of the artwork of her, read her quotes, visit broadsyoushouldknow.com. While you're there, you can click on over to the About page and you can read more about me. My bio, picture, links to my cool stuff is all there. Uh, and are you following Broads You Should Know on social media yet? If not, then you should. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest a broad, fill out the form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Are you a fan of Broads You Should Know? If then, please help spread the word about us. Share your favorite episode or this one with your friends and family. And better yet, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps new listeners to find us. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye, with original music by Darren Callahan. Finally, if you really enjoyed Catherine of Siena's story, then I highly recommend you check out some of our other episodes, especially our other sainted broads. We have Hildegard von Bingen Part 1 and 2, the last two weeks here. And we also have Olga of Kiev and Mother Teresa. See you next week for another potentially crazy broad you should know. <laughs>